You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. This past week, I came across a news article. It was on a, a national news um, resource, and, and I was really intrigued. I, I was surprised that it was even on this, this news source, and so I clicked on it. And it was about the dying wish of a man fighting cancer in, in a hospital. He had only days left to live, and his name is Thomas Roberts, and he's at the University of Alabama in Birmingham Hospital, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and he had days left to live, and he had one request, and that was to be baptized. Thomas had never been baptized, and, and he wanted to be baptized, and, and his belief system and, uh, and what he read in the Bible and what we believe here at Discovery was that baptism was by full immersion. But Thomas was wheelchair-bound, and he had tubes, and he, the only way he could breathe was with an oxygen tube, and, and he had other various cords and things connected to him as he was dying. And so this wish was uh, an extreme one. It was a wish that no one would think that he was able to fulfill. But he had shared this with the chaplain, and the chaplain went to work. And the chaplain went and talked to so many different committees and doctors and figuring out ways to make this wish happen. And so, fortunately, we have a picture they were able to figure it out, and they got him to the side of the pool, and they were able to lower him down with a special crane, and they were able to get him there, and the doctor got in the water with him, and the chaplain, and right when it was the moment, the doctor took the oxygen tube off. The chaplain immersed him and brought him back up, and the doctor put the, the tube back on. It was a beautiful moment, Right? And it was this moment that uh, his whole family was there, uh, his, his wife and kids, his sister and his niece and nephew were all there. And in the article, there's a quote from his sister, because Thomas passed away six days later. And this article quotes his sister saying, I have peace because I know where he is. She said, when he came up, there was something different. He was born again. And so it's this beautiful story, and as you read this story, uh, I was moved by the idea that this guy wanted to be baptized and the idea that the, the hospital was willing to work this out. And, and you don't know the belief system of the doctors and the nurses and everyone involved that had to be put in to be able to make this happen. But you know about Thomas's beliefs. And, and the other thing that struck me in this article, it didn't say what Thomas did for a living. It didn't say how much Thomas made. It didn't say the size of Thomas's house. It didn't say anything about any accomplishment Thomas has ever done in his life. But it told us about an accomplishment that will guarantee his eternity. What an amazing thing. And so I came across this story, and it just hit me as we we're going through the book of Acts. We're going to see a shift now in the story of Paul. You've been following Paul as, as we've gone through Acts, and we've seen him do many things, and we've seen him go from one persecuting Christians to, to, being, to meeting Jesus, to giving his life over, to now uh, planting churches, to performing miracles, to being uh, in fights, to being persecuted, to being left for dead, to healing a dead man, to doing all these different things. But that shifts now to Paul's relationship with Jesus. When everything is taken away, when those church plants are taken away, when the miracles are taken away, when the fighting is taken away, we're left with Jesus and Paul. Paul and Jesus. Thomas and Paul. Uh, Thomas and Jesus. Jesus and Thomas. You and Jesus. Jesus and you. When everything is torn away, that's what's left. 
So if you have your Bibles, open it. We're going to start at the very end of chapter 22 as we finish off 22 and going into chapter 23 of the book of Acts. And if you weren't here with us last week, let me tell you, it was a really neat week. We had this neat experience, and you'll see a video of this at the end, kind of alluding, filling in the story. But we had these stones where everyone wrote about moments that they met God, moments that God intervened in their life. Maybe it was days, or it was, some people drew pictures, some people wrote just sentences or stories stories about times where you met God. And so last week we did that, and last week we looked at Paul. He was in the temple, and he's just worshiping God. And, and a group of Jews from Asia had saw him and said and made this false accusation that he was bringing Gentiles into the Israelite section of the temple, which was not true. But they make this false accusation, and they capture Paul, and they begin to beat him, trying to kill him. The riot has gotten so bad, the violence is so fierce that the message gets to the Roman commander. The commander brings in 200 soldiers and they flood the temple and they put an end to this riot. They grab Paul and they take him to the barracks trying to figure out what to do with him. So that's where we pick up on the story. Is Paul is now in the jail awaiting to figure out what is about to happen. So if you will, join me in verse 30, chapter 22. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. The, the commander is in charge of bringing peace in Jerusalem. The Jews had their own system of, of, of processing laws that are broken, Jewish laws, and they had their own system of, of prosecuting that and punishing people, but they couldn't have corporal punishment. That had to go through Rome. And that's what the Jews were trying to do. They were trying to kill Paul. And so he eventually gets into Rome's hands, and it's now in the commander's hands on figuring out what to do. And so he decides he's going to gather the leaders of the Jews. He's going to gather the Sanhedrin, uh, this group of 70 men, this group of educated leaders, this group of Sadducees and Pharisees to come together. And he's going to bring Paul in the same room, and we're going to get to the bottom of this. He's going to find out what, what the charges are, if it's worthy of a corporal punishment, and, and if, they, if they need to put him to death, or what they need to do. And so he gathers these people, and it's a quick meeting. And when the commander orders, everyone must move. And so they, everyone, all the parts of the Sanhedrin, these 70 men, are, are busy doing their work, are busy with their families, are busy out and about, and they've been told to come, and so they come. And so they all gather at the commander's location, and they bring in Paul, and they try to figure out what's going on. And I love Paul's boldness, all right? If there's anything that we could describe about Paul, it is that he is bold. In verse, chapter 23, it begins, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Look at that sentence one more time with me. I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. I look at that sentence, and I wonder for you and for me, could I say that? Could I stand before a, a group of people that hold my future in the palm of their hands, or, or maybe even just before a group of friends, and could I say, with all good conscience, I have fulfilled the duty that God has for me to this day? And I love that Paul can say this, because Paul, of all people, right, Paul oversaw the death of Christians, Paul was the one persecuting the Christians, and he can say he has a good conscience because he's received forgiveness for those sins. 
I think right there, that part of the sentence some people would struggle with. Because you haven't received the forgiveness. You haven't accepted the forgiveness that Jesus is freely giving. And so Paul, of anyone that should feel, feel dirty, of anyone that should feel the burden of what he has done, he's realized Jesus has forgiven those, and he is clean. And so with good conscience, he can say, he's fulfilled the duty God has given him. And I see that sentence, and I think, man, I would love for that to be something that we could each proclaim. That in my interactions with my family, I've fulfilled what God has called me to do. In my interactions with work, with your interactions with work, with your interactions at school, with your interactions with your teams, with your interactions with your neighbors, with your interactions with your family, that you could say you have fulfilled what God has called you to do. What a bold statement. Do you think you could make that statement? As we go into this, the word of God is convicting. And sometimes it's convicting when you think, I don't know if I could say that. And if not, what do we need to change to be able to proclaim that to anyone? That I have fulfilled what God has called me to do. And so Paul boldly makes this statement. And it's bold. As we're about to see, the Sanhedrin is quickly offended, offended by this. Verse 2 says, at, that moment, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Ananias was a greedy, selfish high priest. He was a high priest from 47 AD to 66 AD when he was assassinated. And, and uh, Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, reports that he was a greedy, corrupt leader. And you see that even in this story. That he's not following the laws of, the, of Moses. He's not following the laws of the Lord. Because he's rendered a verdict before the trial has even taken place. That, he, that Paul should be hit. That was against the law. But Ananias doesn't care. And so Paul obviously does care. And he calls him out on it. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Paul calls him out, right? And he calls him a whitewashed wall, and, and that's a reference to us that doesn't mean much, but it was a reference to the, the whitewashed tombstones. That you make these tombstones look nice, but they're marking old decaying bones. That on the outside it looks good, but on the inside it's decayed. On the inside it's rotten. That you have the high priest that on the outside everyone might think highly of him, but on the inside his walk with the Lord is rotten, is decayed. And so Paul calls him out, but in verse 4 it says, Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. There's a lot of theories on why Paul didn't know that this was the high priest. Some people say that Paul did, and this was just sarcasm. Oh, I didn't know he was a high priest, the way he's acting, right? But I don't think that was it. Because Paul still goes on to apologize and calls himself out. The scripture says he should have had respect for that position. Some people say from other scriptures that Paul had poor eyesight. But here at the beginning of the story, he looks directly at the Sanhedrin. So I don't know if that's it. I think it's simply a matter that Paul didn't know he was the high priest. 
Remember, the commander has made this gathering quick and spontaneous, so they didn't have an opportunity to go get their formal garment and to get their robes, to get the high priest robe, which stood out and would have made him significantly different. This is at the commander's location, not at the normal location that the Sanhedrin would meet. And so the high priest who would be on an elevated seat isn't on his elevated perch anymore. He's just a normal guy among a group. And Paul has only been in now Jerusalem a few times in the past 20 years. He's probably heard about Ananias. Probably not good things. But he doesn't know that this guy that ordered the hit is the high priest. And so he apologizes because he respects God's word. And respects that he's supposed to have honor for the people above him. I was listening to a radio show this past week and it had an interview with Tony Dungy, the Hall of Fame coach of the Colts and the Buccaneers. And Tony Dungy was telling a story about officiating. And so there's this one game for the, the Indianapolis Colts and the officials made a horrible call. And it cost the Colts the game and he was just furious about it. And at the press conference, he ripped into the officials. He talked about how bad they were and how they cost the game and how they made a huge mistake and they need to look into this. And, and he got off the podium and he got a phone call. He said that that, time, that was the one time he's ever insulted the officials because he got a $10,000 fine from the NFL and he got a call from his mama. His, he said that his mama, this is a grown man, the leader of the Indianapolis Colts, but his mama called and she said, you embarrassed me tonight. You embarrassed our whole family because yours, the Bible says to have respect for those who are over you. And so you did not do that today in the press conference. And in this news in our interview, he said, it was the fine that, that hit me hard, but it was more the call from my mama that kept me from ever doing that again. Because he had respect for the people over him. And I see this story, and I see that Paul is here, and he has every right in, in human flesh to turn against the high priest. But he has respect for that position. And I think how often do we complain about our employer Right at the water cooler with the other employees. Complain about our teachers. Complain about political leaders. Complain and we make fun of and we tear them apart. Just think, if every moment that we were complaining about our boss, we were praying for him. Every moment that we were complaining about that teacher, we prayed for him. What would that look like in our hearts and maybe in their lives if we lifted them up to God instead of tearing them down? So Paul apologizes and has respect for that position. And then Paul is a witty guy. And he kind of takes this hearing into his own hands. And, and he addresses the crowd. Verse 6 says, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out to the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. You see, these two groups, this group that made up the 70 people of the Sanhedrin, had vastly different viewpoints on a few specific things, one of those being the resurrection. The Sadducees held just to Genesis through Deuteronomy that doesn't reference anything about the resurrection, and so they did not believe in the resurrection of the souls. They did not believe that there was a resurrection after life, after life where the Pharisees believed that there would be a resurrection. And so Paul quickly divides the group. He says, hey, I'm a Pharisee. He probably looks out at the Pharisees, and, and he catches their eye and says, in a way of saying, I'm one of you. I got you. We're in this together, and I am here because of the hope of the resurrection. 
And at that, it just blows up. Then the Pharisees are saying, yeah, yeah, there's a resurrection. And the Sadducees are saying, this guy's crazy. This is no such thing. And so he causes this disturbance among their own group. Instead of turning on Paul, now they start turning on each other. Verse 8 says, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there is neither angels nor spirits. That's a key we're about to see. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There's a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? So the Pharisees are quick to now defend Paul, and they say, what if an angel spoke to him, which upsets the Sadducees even more? Whoa, wait a second. This isn't even something Paul said. Now the Pharisees are just trying to aggravate the Sadducees, and this fight begins to broil. And so I think that Paul probably did this on purpose, to draw the attention away from him. But I think there is a bigger meaning here. If you, we watch Paul's life, and we've watched it throughout the book of Acts, Paul never misses an opportunity to share about Jesus. And so you watch his words. It was, he had a key. I am here because of the hope in the resurrection. I believe his goal was to hopefully share, to at least unite with the Pharisees, we have this resurrection. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the ultimate resurrection. And so he, in an attempt to try to, to maybe divide the group, also in an attempt to share his message, chaos just ensues. Everyone's upset. People are arguing. And now Paul is at the center of this. The Pharisees are trying to defend him. The Sadducees are trying to persecute him. And so they're pulling on him back and forth. And so much so that verse 10 says, The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So now Paul is alone. Back in the jail cell. This meeting was brought about early in the morning, and now he's put into a jail cell. And he doesn't know what's happening up in the court. He doesn't know if his future is being determined that he's about to be killed or if he's going to be set free. He doesn't know what's going on, and he doesn't have a clue. He's just in the midst of a dark, damp jail cell with all the other criminals. People here surrounding him have done unsavory things. I have no doubt that Paul used that opportunity to witness to them. But there Paul sits in a dark cell, not knowing his future. And then we get to the part of the story that I love. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you, may, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the fourth time that Jesus has come to Paul. This is the fourth time that he's had this vision. This is the fourth time in, in chapter 9 where he first met Jesus. Chapter 16, he has a vision in Macedonia. At 18, Jesus comforts Paul about going to Corinth. And here in 23, Jesus comes and brings comfort. He says, take courage. Another translation says, be of good cheer. How? How am I going to be of good cheer, Jesus? I don't know if they're determining what's going to happen to me. I'm here chained in this cell. It's dark. I see no hope. Be of good cheer. And Jesus is saying, I love this message. He says, just as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, Jesus has been there all along. 
Jesus has walked this road with him. Jesus was there when they planted the church. Jesus was there when, they, when he raised the man from the, the boy that fell out of the window and brought him back to life. Jesus was there when he was preaching to the people. He was there when he was preaching to the Jews, to the Gentiles. Jesus has been here all along. Jesus is there just as he's come and proclaimed about him in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, take courage because I am here with you. I am here. That yeah, you're in the midst of a pit in this jail cell wrapped up in chains. But be of good cheer for I'm here. There's people in this room that feel like you're strapped down by chains. Chains of finances, chains of health, chains of relationships that are just to seem to be weighing you down. Maybe you feel like you're in that pit, you're in this jail cell, and everyone around you is unsavory characters, and you just feel alone. But take courage. Jesus is right by your side. Jesus is there. And I love this message. It's a message to Paul, but it's a message to each one of us. We see this message in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. I love this verse. It says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. In the pit of a jail cell, when you're chained, Jesus is there with you. And whatever you're going through in life right now, Jesus is there. And he makes this proclamation to Paul. Be of good cheer, because I'm here with you. Like a little child that's scared. Something scary happens, and they turn, and they run to mom and dad, and they reach out their arms, and they just grab onto daddy. It's what we can do. So we come to our father and reach out, and he holds us. That in the midst of fear, in the midst of disparaging times, be of good cheer. Take courage. He's there with you. It's a beautiful message to Paul. It's a beautiful message to each one of us. And, and I see in this message, he says, just as you've testified to me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This message to Paul was, I, I've been with you all along, and we're still going to do great things. And if you know, this message doesn't say that Paul's going to be safe. It doesn't say his health is going to be good. It doesn't talk about his wealth and prosperity. It doesn't talk about his family situation working out perfect. It doesn't talk about any of these things that we often get worried about, any of these things that we often focus all of our energies on. It says, you will be able to testify about me in Rome. It's about God's story. Our time here on earth is about God's story. The idea of Thomas Roberts, the man that was baptized just before death. Like I said, that article has nothing to do with his, with his home life. Nothing to do with anything Thomas has done. That story is about what Jesus has done. That Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And that we have an opportunity to be baptized with him and to raise again. That same story is for each one of us, for Thomas, for Paul, for you and for me. That imagine that if God was to come to you tonight and, was, and Jesus was to be by your side and he said, I've been with you up to this point. As you've, as you've done these things, and let me tell you, you're going to do great things for me, for my story. And I want to ask you, would that be enough? Would that be satisfying? Would that give you courage? Would that bring you good cheer? 
It's not about our wealth. It's not about what we will get out of this life. It's not about future happiness and everything being perfect. It's about being part of God's story. Wouldn't that be an amazing vision to have? Would that be enough? Would that be satisfying for you and for me to be able to have Jesus say, hey, I'm not making any promises about any of the things that this world says are important, but I'm making a promise that we're going to do great things for my story. I hope that that would be satisfying, that that would be encouraging, that that would bring us to a place of good cheer, that that would bring us to a place of great courage, that we would be in this together with Jesus. And so as we come to this time of communion, we have stations around the room. I want to encourage you to, to get up and go take off a piece of the bread and dip it in the juice. And then right next to it is a piece of wood with a nail inside. And the nail represents the nails that held Jesus to the cross, but, but it wasn't just the nails that held him there. It was our sins. Our sins placed him there, and our sins were washed away when he rose again three days later. And so this morning, I pray that at this time of communion, we would be able to come to him and take courage. That we would come to him and be of good cheer, that in the midst of, you might feel chained down, and you might be in the midst of a dark prison right now. But know this, Jesus is there with you. That you might be in the midst of a great time, and everything is good. And know this, Jesus is with you. Jesus is walking this journey with you. And I pray that we would be all thrilled, encouraged, that if he was to come, he says, I've been with you up till this point, and know this. You're going to pursue bringing God glory, pursue his story, and we're going to be there together. If you'll pray with me. Lord, we just come and I just lift up this morning. God, let it be a, a reminder that you are with us, that we're not alone. God, I pray that it is a reminder of your strength and your love on the cross. That you died for our sins and rose again. And that our sins are washed away. That we are born again when we have accepted you, when we've been baptized, when we've given our life over to you. And God, I pray that that message to Paul would be the message to each one of us. That you are there with us. And God, I pray that, that we would be satisfied with a message of we're going to do great things for your kingdom. That we are going to be an example for you. That we are going to live for you. And God, I pray that each one of us would be able to say with a good conscience, I have fulfilled what God has called me to do. God, we lift this up in your name.